0: You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Well, friends, there is a a force that is colliding head-on with church services right around this country. Uh, A force that is sweeping millions of people up into its wake. I'm talking about reality television. Because whenever you've got shows like The Block or The Renovators or MasterChef, particularly the finals that are on church services in this country, diminished by about 30%. And the question I'm going to ask is, what makes them so popular? And I believe my answer is this, that there is something deep within us uh, that finds a joy and an excitement in witnessing transformation, whether it's the transformation of a terrace in Melbourne somewhere, or from a bit of flour into a cake, if that's what excites you. People like seeing transformation, and I believe it's this intrigue that got a king to come all the way out and to listen to a prisoner in the docks of a Jewish court. Now, I need to confess to you this morning, I'm a bit of a reality TV addict as well, Uh, but semi-reality TV. I'm a big addict of the show The West Wing, a US political drama. What I like about the show is that uh, before every episode, there's a a little prelude uh, that says previously on the West Wing. And it gives you this quick synopsis of where we're up to in the story. And it would be remiss of me not to do that this morning with this passage. As we enter this passage here, it is the climax um, of an incredibly big chunk of scripture. So uh, let me start with this by saying previously on Paul Goes to Rome. Up until this point, the book of Acts has shown that Paul has been incredibly in control of his own situation. Uh, Acts chapter 13 to 20, which has been uh, the scope of this entire series to the ends of the earth, follows Paul's three missionary journeys over, over a time period that was spanning about 10 years. And now this point is very different because now in Acts chapter 21 to verse 28, it, it's devoted entirely to follow uh, the stories of five judicial trials of the apostle Paul. Paul's been falsely accused by the Jewish people and particularly the high priest Ananias as a troublemaker and a stir of riots amongst Jews all around the world. And uh, and these false charges are brought before the Roman governor Felix in the first place that we don't hear in this passage, who brings no resolution at all. In fact, Felix leaves Paul in a prison for two years. How's that for sort of political acquiescence? Um, And when this transition of government takes place, a new governor comes in, the new Barry O'Farrell comes in, Festus, recognizes that he's quickly out of his depth uh, with this guy Paul and his charges because they're baseless charges. So he enlists the help of King Agrippa II, his mate, uh, this king who had been part of a family that had tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, a family that had beheaded John the Baptist, a, a, a family that had slain James. And so he enlists the help of King Agrippa to say, I can't send Paul to Rome without some charges against him. Maybe you, Agrippa, as a Jew, will help work out what the issues are at hand. And so with this visit of King Agrippa and his sister Bernice hand in hand, read between the lines there. The possibility of a resolution looked pretty good, and it's this intrigue. Agrippa wants to talk to this prisoner for himself. And what will help you understand this story is both the drama and the significance of this event and this climactic event. The drama is, look, for those of you that are a visual sort of people, just think Wills and Kate. Think royal wedding. Think all the the ceremony and the incredible uh, uh, horses and the people all dressed up. That was what was happening. Verse 23 of chapter 5 says... Three key figures come in, the king, his sister Benice, Festus, the king and Bernice, uh positions of royalty, gold crowns on their head, purple, uh, clothed in purple as part of their royal grandeur. And when all this grandeur and pageantry is in place, Luke tells us that it's that point that Festus gives us the command for this little guy Paul to come in. <laughs> But we also see the significance of the scene, accompanied by Festus in the role of Roman governor, who, uh, if he wore his robes for the occasion, would have been wrapped in scarlet, followed by an entourage of ranking Roman officers, leading men of the city, it says. Here in Caesarea, the royal capital of the world, the whole city is gathered now to hear Paul. And uh, look, it would be the modern-day equivalent, I guess, of, um, of Danny DeVito speaking to the UN. What an incredible scene. After years and years on the road as a preacher, city after city, synagogue after synagogue, from Straight Street in Damascus to the great buildings of Athens, a debate, discussion, reasoning from the scriptures, and as the eyes of royalty and the eyes of politicians and the eyes of aristocracy are bearing down on this little man in the dock. Does he give him a sermon? Does he give him a Bible lecture? No, he gives him his testimony. Paul gives them his story. Paul begs Agrippa to hear his testimony. 25 years after his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul simply shares his story. What can we learn from this? What we can learn from this is God can use your story for his glory. God can use your story for his glory if he could do that with Paul. At the heart of it, we saw it's a story of, of transformation, of extreme makeover, of a renovation rescue. It was Paul's story, a story we see this morning of a person called, a story of a person commissioned and a person concerned. You see, what does it mean to be called by God? Let me put it this way. It's it's rugby world cup season at the moment. Many of us have got smiles on our faces and uh, and in a rugby theme, I, I taught my little brother when he was six years old in his first year of rugby how to how to play rugby and to run fast and to pass the ball, and we'd practice relentlessly in the backyard. And as we took him out to his first game at Bellrose there, um, his first touch of the ball, bang, he took off. Passed one defender, through to the next one, passed another one, sidestepping another one, running full pelt, they couldn't catch him. He slides over the try line, throws the ball in the air, except no one was clapping. You see, he'd, he'd run to the wrong goal line. <laughs> Now, that that is that is what is Christianity. Christianity is a new tra- trajectory. You know, you see, until until someone, until God comes into your life and tells you that you've been running toward the wrong goal line, unless someone breaks in, then you're always going to be running towards the goal, wrong goalpost. And Paul himself was running towards the wrong goalpost. Chapter twenty-six, verse nine, in his testimony to Agrippa, he says, "I too." was convinced that I ought to do whatever was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's exactly what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, And I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against, against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme in my obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Paul was going to the wrong goalposts. <laughs> and and God, God's calling changes your trajectory. That's what, that's what Christianity is. See, and one of the questions that any thinking person is going to have, if you're wondering about the faith, any thinking person is going to ask the question, what do I make of this transformation of Saul of Tarsus? Because what we have here in Paul is not some minor shift in his thinking. It, it was a complete conversion. It was a complete remake. It was a total transformation. We've got to ask, how do, how do I account for the change from Saul the persecutor to Paul the preacher? How do we account for the change? We see that the, the Christianity is not just a change in your trajectory. Christianity is a call of divine transformation. Christianity is an extreme makeover. And any one of us is capable of marginal shifts in our perspectives. Oh, all right, look, yeah, I'll do a bit more church or I'll do a bit more reading. Or a, but look... What was Paul's story? Paul's story was, I was once in opposition to Jesus, now I'm his servant. I was once persecuting, now I'm a preacher. I was once legalistic, now I'm loving. This is not a marginal shift in Paul. It's a total transformation. And the Bible is full of stories that demonstrate that when you receive the call of God, it is more than just a minor shift in your behavior. (laughs) Think about it when, 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 when Jesus um, calls his disciples to first follow him and he meets a, a young guy called Simon whose name literally meant Reedy and, and, or though he who's swaying in the wind and he says, come follow me and you will now be called Cephas. You will be called Rock or I'll call you Rocky. <laughs> and the funny, about, the funny thing about the Bible is that when God comes and calls you in love, he makes you by his call what he calls you. So Christianity is a call from God that transforms you. That's why Paul's story is one of of, of a person who was called. That's why F.F. Bruce, the great commentator, says, uh, the conversion of Saul to Paul is perhaps one of the greatest proofs that Christianity is a divine religion. How do we account for his transformation? And so what it means is when God calls you, he not only changes your trajectory of your life, he transforms it. Guys, this morning, have you experienced that sort of change in your life? Is that, is, that, is that true of your life this morning? That sort of transformation? And, and, and if it is your story, then Paul's example in front of Agrippa is a great principle for us. And that is, focus on the dramatic change that Jesus has made in your life whenever you're telling your story. <laughs> the, the, the before and after, sort of the Kerry ann cooking show principle. Here's what I was before, and, and here's what, we've, what God's prepared earlier. The, the incredible contrast that Jesus Christ has made in your life the master shift principle why people love watching the show paul's story was a story of a person called but it was also a story of a person commissioned you see i've said it before god is a spiritual tornado he only he only calls you in in order to fling you back out again and that's exactly what he did to paul he commissioned him and no sooner does jesus um uh call paul but he also sends him out verse 16 uh, of of this defense, Paul also says in telling his story again that Jesus says to him, "Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you." Jesus says, "I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them." He's a spiritual tornado. He called Paul in, only to send him out again. You see, to commission something is is to to set it up, to put it. To work, something newly produced. What I'm trying to say here is that when God breaks the champagne bottle over the bow of your life, He doesn't expect you to sit in the dry dock. We are commissioned... First and foremost, to take the good news of Jesus to the world. Jesus expects that of his spirit empowered um, ministers. That's what he says in the first chapter of Acts Go, you will be my spirit empowered witnesses, first to Jerusalem, to Judea, and at the end of the earth. His call to his apostles is his call to us this morning, if you call yourself a Christian. And what is amazing is that 25 years later, as Paul stands before Agrippa, broken nose, legs bowed, scars on his back, monobrow. He says, I was was not disobedient to the vision. I was not disobedient, King Agrippa, to the vision from heaven. First in Damascus, to those in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. His call is our call. 25 years later, he's still telling his story. Same story. Why? Tells it all the time. It's because the call of God powers the commission. The call of God is like the nuclear fuel rod in the reactor that was Paul's life. And so he constantly went back to that calling in order to energize him as the source of his obedience to God. He was, he was not walking around saying, I'm doing all this. I'm, obe- I'm obedient to God in order that he might come and rescue me. He's saying, because God rescued me on the road to Damascus, I'm obedient. And friends, it begs a question that if you're feeling a bit spent this morning, if your spiritual passion seems to be languishing, then my question is, how, how often do you reflect on the time in which God first grabbed you? On your road to Damascus. Maybe you need to replenish the fuel rod. One of the great things in this place. I love chatting with some of the older ladies. And we go and have a cup of tea and a biscuit after the service. And one of the older ladies who said. "It's not here with us this morning. Every, every third Sunday I'd chat to her. And she would just retell me the story of when she was first baptized. She kept placing fuel rods in her life at 95. And she was going stronger than ever in the faith. God called Paul, but the call powered his commission to take the message to the ends of the earth. But here's the other thing. He was also commissioned. And the great mystery, he was commissioned. As we heard in the communion talk this morning, one of the great mysteries of the faith, he was commissioned to suffer. He was commissioned to suffer. And the interesting part of this story was at the beginning of all of this, there's a dispute so big in chapter 23 that the Roman governors were worried that they were going to rip Paul limb from limb. They were going to tear him apart. And so they get these Roman soldiers around him to protect him. And then it says in verse 11 of chapter 23, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, this is Jesus, stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So you must also testify in Rome. And the question is, how was Jesus going to get to Rome? And the irony was, it was going to be in chains. It was going to be in chains. He was going to suffer. And what it shows us is that God is infinitely... Infinitely resourceful in achieving his purpose even through the self-serving decisions of selfish people. <laughs> Do you get this? If you get this, it will help you with the roadblocks and the opposition that you might face or have faced in your Christian life. When you hit the roadblock now, you realize that God in the mystery of his purposes is able to use the most difficult and horrible of circumstances to fulfill his plans and his picture and his purposes for your life. And so now I'm not saying that Paul was always thinking in this way all the time, but but maybe he thought like this, that when he put his head on the pillow or his tunic rolled up in the jail cell that night and tried to factor in all that was happening to him, maybe he still must have said, I remember way back then when I was converted and the way that Ananias came to me. And told me how the risen Jesus had said to him of me, Paul, that that this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. And I will show him how much he has to suffer for my name. And as he lies in the jail cell, he says to himself, you know what? The risen Jesus has been absolutely true to that. (laughs) And he might be saying the reason that I'm here in captivity is because these Gentile kings and I'm before these Gentile kings is not because I'm spitting helplessly and hopelessly out of control in a world that is out of control. The reason that I'm here is because these pagan kings and these governors and these rulers are exercising their own free will. But they're doing it within the orb of God's overarching providence. The reason I'm here is because these individuals, even in their evil, are becoming the very means by which God is fulfilling his purposes. Maybe in his jail cell he went back and remembered the time as a great student of the Old Testament, the story of Joseph who, like Paul was in that jail cell, was once in prison also. And Joseph, who, like Paul, was elevated in front of kings. And Joseph, like Paul... um, was said to the ones who sold him into slavery, I forgive you. And Joseph in his story says to them, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. And maybe off the back of that, it's what inspired him later on to write in Romans. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul understood that God's calling and God's commission won't take you to a place where his grace can't reach you. And so Paul was commissioned to share the good news of Jesus with the world, but he was also commissioned to suffer. Paul was a person called, he was a Paul, Paul was a person commissioned, and finally we see this morning that Paul was a person concerned. As his testimony begins to come to a close, Festus interjects. Now it's funny because people probably do that when you start getting to the sharp end of your testimony and they know that it's going to start edging towards the, uh, the, the, the the spiritual end of things or time to make a bit of a decision, then suddenly the, the red herrings start to flow into the conversation. I don't know if you ever had that experience before. But Festus interjects and we see this incredible interaction. Uh, of, of, of discussion between these three key players here. Festus to Paul says, Paul, uh, you're out of your mind, you're insane. And then Paul says, I'm not insane, Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king's familiar with these things, so let me talk to the king. You just shush there. Let me talk to the king here. And he turns to the king and says, King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. And there's silence in the gallery. People are elbowing each other. Did did he just talk to the king like that? Did he seriously stand up to the king like that? Could he be so bold, so rude? Did he just say that? And and Agrippa sort of deflects it. We don't know what his, what his tone of voice would be like, but he says, Paul, are you seriously trying to convince me to be a Christian? And then we have that wonderful line, one of my favorites in the Bible, short time or long, I pray that not only you, but all those who are listening to me today may become what I am, Except for these chains, Paul was concerned. Paul was concerned about the the people that he was talking to, and it was an amazing mix of boldness and compassion for these people. and And, and it's right throughout the whole episode. How do we find this balance? First, we've got to see in Paul that he had a deeply, deeply complex mix of emotions and feelings. And John Stott says in his commentary that the reason we can't speak the way that Paul speaks is that you've got to have the same feelings that Paul had if you're going to be effective. And they were an incredible mix of feelings. They're a strong mixture of both boldness and compassion. It's not one or the other, it was both. And you see what he did do in the courtroom. What, look, what did he do? Did he, get up and say, did he get up and say, you filthy incestuous sinners, Agrippa and Bernice? This, this guy was brother and sister and they were living together. He says, you did he get up and say, you filthy rotten sinners, you, repent, you evil people. No, he starts with incredible humility. Verse 2 and 3, he says, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. You're well acquainted with all the customs, therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. There was compassion, but there was also boldness. There was boldness, but there was also compassion. And here's why Paul was so effective in sharing his story in front of all those people there. And that is because if if, if you are not filled with boldness, then you're not going to have the courage to speak to the king like that. But at the other end of the spectrum, if if you're totally filled with all boldness and no compassion then you're not going to have the gentleness or the humility. You won't give the impression that you care about people or that you understand them or, or, or that you, you respect them. You won't share Jesus because you just won't be listened to. And so unless the, we as Christians are both both bold and compassionate, we'll go into the world and be utterly ineffective. Because if, if we're only bold or we're only compassionate, we're, go, we're not going to change anyone's life because you'll either be too harsh or you'll be too scared. To win them over for Jesus. But what, what we see in this interaction is that Paul was filled with a balance between boldness and compassion. Short time or long, he wanted this king, King Agrippa, in the arms of the ultimate king. And so this combination of courage and compassion, it's extremely rare in the world today because look, we either refuse, look, I, I know what it's like in my life, we either refuse to say anything at all or, or we go too far and we speak offensively to people. And so how did, how did Paul overcome this? In 1 Corinthians 10, he says to the church, Brothers, I came to you with fear and trembling, but while I was with you, I resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, Paul looked at the cross. Paul looked at the cross and it got burnt into his heart. And the cross is the only spot in any religion in the world where you see a God so holy that he pours out his wrath, but a God so loving that he loses his son in order to do so. At the cross, Paul saw a God that was both bold and compassionate. A God who just wanted those on the wrong trajectory in his arms. And when that burnt into Paul's heart, that turned him into something that often we're not... It's not working out how we we, we do that. It's about how we become the sort of person that Paul was. Paul had a loving concern. Someone who thinks so highly of God and of other people that he just wanted them both in each other's arms. Agrippa, will you believe? Boldness. Short time or long, Agrippa, I pray that you're all I am. Compassion. Paul was both. Paul was called, he was commissioned, he was concerned. What I want to say to you this morning, that that story of Paul, your story is Paul's story. Your story can be used for God's glory if you remain strong in the face of opposition. And the question that we've got to ask is, how do we remain strong in the face of opposition? against workmates, it could be family members, it just could be people we meet in the street. You know, and look, I believe Paul gives us some sort of insight. Because as, as Paul stood there in front of the king and the aristocracy and the politicians, and he stood there in the dock with the king bearing down upon him, how did Paul stay so calm and compassionate yet bold? It's because it, Paul already faced the ultimate king. And he blinded him. And this ultimate king, unlike Agrippa, who was, Agrippa was a king full of pomp and pageantry, a king guilty of a questionable relationship with his sister, unlike that king, this ultimate king also, like Paul, stood innocent before a Roman trial. This ultimate king also had charges brought against him that were bogus. This ultimate king also had the Roman leadership say, I can find no charges against this man." And still this king suffered in the midst of human opposition and even still in the great political and judicial train wreck that is the cross. Glory came out of the story. And strength came out of weakness and justice came out of injustice and good emerged out of evil. Paul, Paul could boldly and compassionately and unswervingly share his story of divine transformation because the Jesus that he encountered on the road to Damascus, the Jesus who sent him to the ends of the earth was not asking him to do anything more than what he had already experienced himself. Friends, only until we look to Jesus and see what he asks of you and I and realize that it's nothing more than what he himself endures, only then when we dwell on what the ultimate King Jesus has done for us, can we overcome the fear of opposition and be compelled by love instead of pride to share his story in our lives. Paul's story is my story. Paul's story is your story. Paul's story is a story of a God who breaks in and changes the trajectory of your life. Paul's story is a story of a God who transforms your life. Paul's story is of a God who sends you out to go and share the news with others. Paul's story is a story uh, of a God who breaks your heart for those that are still lost. And Some of you might be hearing this message now and are thinking, Sam, do you think seriously that in this short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And I say, short time or long, I pray that you become all that I am, except for this coat. <laughs> Friend, if that's you, allow God to break into your life and change your trajectory this morning. Maybe you're a Christian and you need God to do that to you this morning. <laughs> to My Christian friends, here's my, here's my question at the end of the day. Would it really kill you to share the story of Jesus' transformation in your life with someone this week? Because the irony for Paul, yeah, it it did. It did kill him. And we are blessed uh, and, and we are so lucky in this country that we probably won't face that level of opposition. And so when we see that, it makes us ever stronger and ever courageous to share with someone what Jesus has done for us this week. And you know what? In the midst of all that, if only people realized That the best stories of transformation, the best stories of transformation and renovation on a Sunday are not on Channel 10 or not at Master Chef or the Renovators, but they're here in God's church. I want to say to this morning that God can use your story for his glory. And is your story one of divine calling? Is it one of divine commission? Is it one of divine concern for the lost? If it is, you'll do just fine.